0: this text um, Peter is saying that Christ is the refuge for all of our souls Um, if you don't know that I hope that at the end of this you do Um, I've never regretted giving my life to Christ never for an instant never regretted becoming a minister of the gospel never for an instant does it get weary and hard absolutely it does Absolutely. Everything gets weary and hard, But there are no regrets when you come to Jesus. Amen. Well, let's look now at God's word. First Peter chapter 2. I want to begin at verse number 18. Read down to verse number 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him While all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever, and this is the word that will be taught unto you, amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, this is your people, They have come to hear from you. You are the shelter for their weary souls. So I pray that you might provide what is needed. Lord, I cannot look into their hearts. Only you have that ability. And so it is my prayer that sovereignly, supernaturally, that you draw these men and women to you, that they might commit their lives fully and wholly to you because as the ancient theologians would often say, you are the ends perfectissimo, the most holy, perfect, beautiful, complete being imaginable. Lord, there is nothing else more wonderful and beautiful and awesome than to think about you, who you are, and what you have done. And as I set upon that task today, I pray that by your spirit, it might be clear. And that it might bring about the task and the result in which you intended. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, it feels like, to some degree, um, I haven't been here in a while. I was telling someone this morning that it feels like I've been pass through the closed uh, closet of Narnia, you know, like when you go in, you spend 20 years, and then you come back, and nothing's really changed. That's how long it feels like I've been here and actually taught on this text, but if you remember the last time I was here, if you remember, some of you were asleep, some of you weren't, but if you remember last time I was here, I said that this text was the most important text, this text that I just read you, is the most important text in 1 Peter. All right, Everybody remember that? That's what I said, and I, I stand by that. And the reason why it's the most important text in 1 Peter is because Peter goes from talking about who we are in Christ to talking about what our calling is in Christ. Another way of saying that, he goes from talking about the indicative right who we are to the imperative what we are called to do and isn't it the case that if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 when Peter talks about our justification he talks about Jesus Christ being central to that in fact at the very beginning he said to the foreknowledge of God the Father the sanctification of the uh, of the spirit and obedience in Christ Then later on, he says that we are born again because of Jesus Christ. Your justification is grounded in who Jesus Christ is. So now that he moves from talking about your justification, that you are now a holy nation a royal priesthood, now he switches and he starts talking about your sanctification, how you should live that out. And isn't it the case that when he starts talking about your sanctification, he starts talking about Who? Well, Jesus Christ. The, the text right here, verse 21, down to the end of um, the chapter, theologians say it's the most succinct and complete expression of Christology. Both who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. If you're ever talking to someone about Jesus Christ, and they said, who is Jesus Christ? And you're just drawing a blank. Open your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Read down to the end of the chapter and drop the mic. You could do that. You have my permission. Right? This is a mic-dropping statement of who Jesus Christ is. It's probably the most complete statement in all of the New Testament in who Christ is. It touches everything. I kind of looked at it. It talks about his incarnation, the fact that he, that Christ actually came, came to be an example. It talks about Jesus' active and passive obedience, that he lived this holy life as an example. That's the active passive, meaning he died on the cross. That's the idea of passion. It talks about Jesus Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, a view of the atonement that you and I hold or should hold in which Christ gave himself on behalf of us. It talks about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that by his wounds he was abused for us. By his wounds we are healed. And it talks about Christ's session, that right now he is the shepherd that oversees your soul. This is the most complete statement on that in all of Scripture. But not only is this high theology, I want you also to see this is eminently practical. You know, every now and then you read a statement um, that somebody else wrote, and you know that the Holy Spirit is all over it. That happened to me recently. And it actually speaks to this text. I read a commentator said this. He said, a wrong view of the messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. Now, notice what he's saying, because this is important. What you, and by you I mean the people that are listening to me, what you believe about Jesus Christ impacts how you live your Christian life. What you think about him, how you perceive him, what aspect or what role he has in your life, is eminently important to how you live out your Christian life. If you misunderstand who Jesus is, if you misunderstand the high role that Jesus Christ has in your life, then you'll misunderstand the Christian faith. You'll misunderstand your role as a believer. You'll misunderstand what it it is that you're called to. It is eminently important. I remember being in a seminary class, and it was like a history of Christianity class, and we were going through um, the ecumenical councils, the, the first seven, right, and I remember somebody sitting down there and we had gone through them and somebody raised their class. It's like, why do we have to learn this stuff anyway? That's a weird question. You're in seminary. You're in a Christian, uh, history of Christianity class. Of course you need to learn this, right? To which my teacher, and, and you know, he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he said this. He said, listen, if you, the reason why these men for almost 400 years Hammered out who Jesus Christ is. You know, whether it was in um, the council at Nicaea or Ephesus or Constantinople, um, you could go through all the seven councils. You could go through all the heresies Arianism, Apollinarianism, right? All of the Christian heresies. The reason why they spent so much time hammering out, dying for, wrestling with, the the person and work of Jesus Christ is because they understood if you misunderstand Christ, you misunderstand Christianity. If you don't grasp who Jesus is, you cannot truly be a Christian. In fact, they understood that without Christ, there is no Christianity. Recently, um, a group of us meet Monday at about 4.30, and we've been dealing with the issue of pornography in the church. And by the way, if you struggle with the issue of pornography, I highly recommend you come. meets on Monday at 4.30. And we've been going through um, Colossians. Now, look, I've read Colossians about, all the way through, about 20 times or so. And I've read portions of it probably twice that much. And just recently, I read Colossians chapter 1, and and in Colossians chapter 1, it talks about Christ, but it talks about the preeminency of Christ. And for the first time, in my whole time reading the book of Colossians, it really struck me how the Bible says that you and I need to have Christ factor preeminently in our lives. That he is before all things, that in him all things consist. Over and over, Christ talks about uh, the Gospels and, and, and the Bible, really, especially the New Testament. They talk about the preeminency of Christ. Why would they talk about the preeminency of Christ? Because if Christ is not preeminent in your life, you are not a believer. You have no Christianity. You don't understand Christianity. I have a young man um, that I know we've been praying for him. A group of us have been praying for him. He's a He became ordained. I was there when he became ordained. I voted for him when he became ordained. That now he's walking away from the faith. You know why he's walking away from the faith? Because he started misunderstanding who Christ was. Anyone inside here today that's going to walk away from the faith is going to do it because you don't have Christ right. That Christ is not preeminent in your life. That he's not the sole reason for why you wake up in the morning and you do what you do. If that reality is not central to your life, you, my friend, are on a slippery slope to unbelief and walking away from the faith. There's no doubt about it. That's why Peter here puts Christ at the center of their suffering. Because if he is not preeminent, if you are not following Christ, if you're not believing in Christ, if Christ isn't central to who you are and what you do, you are on a slippery slope down to unbelief and walking away from the faith. Now, this text is incredible because it reminds us of two central truths about who Jesus Christ is And what Jesus Christ did for us. And when we understand these two truths, right, only then can you and I truly walk and have the living hope that Peter says here that he's calling us to have. Only then can you and I truly make it outside of the furnace or in the furnace in our lives, right? And here's the two, two truths. First of all, Peter says that Christ is an example. But secondly, he says Christ is much more than an example. First of all, Christ is an example. Second of all, that he's much more than an example. Firstly, Christ is, Jesus Christ is our example. Notice with me in verse number 21. Paul is encouraging servants. So the context here is Paul is encouraging servants, right, to obey their masters, even the ones that are unjust. Now let me stop and say this. Obviously, Peter is not advocating slavery in this passage. He's not. Right? And neither does the New Testament necessarily encourage slaves to break out of that slavery. And there are reasons for that. There are social conventions to that that would have almost assured their death had he asked for or mandated a physical uprising against the institution of slavery. But I want you to know as you read this, Peter is not advocating slavery. Nowhere in the Bible uh, do they advocate slavery. In fact, it is true that the seeds of emancipation are sown into the New Testament. Because over and over, Scripture tells us that if one is free in Christ, he is what? Free indeed. Free indeed. So Peter isn't advocating here slavery, but he's saying if you find yourself in a situation where you're being treated unjustly and there's no way you can break out of that situation. He's saying, remember Christ, because now Christ suffered in the same way, being an example for you. Now, I love when texts have a backstory. I love when I'm reading a text and I look at the text and I see a backstory in the text, and there's a backstory in this text. And the back story in this text of, of Peter calling Jesus Christ an example of suffering is this. Right around Mark chapter 8 through verse number 10, in Mark chapter 8 uh, verse uh, through verse number 10, Jesus predicts his suffering three times. And I know you, have, you all have it memorized, so I'm not going to go there. But if you remember the story, the very first time in chapter 8, um, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, look, I'm going to suffer for you. I'm going to die for you. And Peter, after hearing this proclamation, snatches Jesus and brings him to the side. And he says, what are you doing? You can't die. We're, we're going we're to build a kingdom. This is going to be great. We're going to have thousands of people following us. You're going to be healing people. We're going to create an army. We're going to conquer Rome. And Jesus looks at him and says something striking. He says, get thee behind me, what? Satan. Can you imagine Jesus calling you Satan? Technically, he didn't. I just said that for a fact. Technically, he didn't. What he was saying is that the mindset that Peter was embodying at that point is straight from Satan. Because the thing that Peter didn't realize then was that unless Jesus Christ suffered and died for him, he could not be his example. And it wasn't until after Jesus Christ died, rose from the dead and came back, Peter made a startling revelation. In fact, Peter is the only one in the New Testament that actually makes this connection explicitly. He identifies Jesus as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In fact, if you read Isaiah 53 and you read this portion of 1 Peter, you'll see that 1 Peter uh, 2 verse 21 down to the end of the chapter is just dripping with the text of Isaiah 53. This suffering servant, this Messiah that came to die for the sins of his people. This is all over 1 Peter chapter 2 at the end of it explicitly. And so what Peter is doing here is this. He is connecting the Messiah that was prophesied in Psalm 53 to Christ. And he's saying that this same Jesus Christ that walked with us and talked with us and lived with us is the prophesied Messiah who would come and be an example of what true suffering really is. He is the archetype. And I love the fact that he uses the word, the Greek word that he uses there is beautifully translated as an example. In fact, the word itself indicates that he is the Messiah. But more than that, it actually speaks of what we call, or theologians call, the hypostatic union. What's that, Pastor? Here's the hypostatic union. It means that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. As 100% God, he was the perfect example of what God is. You want to know what God is? Look at Jesus Christ. Look at the example of Christ. Notice the way he loved and cared and ministered to people. Notice the way Jesus Christ spoke to people. Notice his holiness and how he treated sin. If you want to know who God is, the Bible says that he is God incarnate. In fact, he came and he exegeted what God was in his body. That's wonderful. That's what it means. He represents God to man. But also, as the hypostatic union, as the one in his hypostasis, both both God, he's also man, meaning this. He represents true humanity. You want to know what it looks like to be fully human, truly human? Look at Jesus. There is no one like him. There is no one as perfect as Jesus. And let me say this, humanity needs an example. There was no one born of a woman other than Christ that could have been our example. Right? And we all need examples. I remember recently I needed to learn how to fix something, and I went on YouTube, right? And we all have done that. We've gone on YouTube. We've looked at it. We said, okay, if this guy can do it, then I can do it. And then you realize, wait a minute, I can't do this. <laughs> I need to call someone. I need to call someone who has more skills, right? But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Peter says... That Jesus Christ came, leaving us an example. What's the next portion after that? So that we might do what? Follow in the steps. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you follow in the steps of God? No, but there's an assumption that you can follow in the steps of the God-man. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, it says Jesus Christ came and took on the form of a what? Servant. He took on the form of a man, becoming a likeness of a servant. A servant. And isn't it interesting, the most lowly person, the most lowly person in Jewish culture at that time was who? A servant. And Peter is connecting the suffering of a servant to the same suffering of Jesus Christ, the ultimate servant, the servant Messiah. And he's saying, that's the example that you and I are called to follow. We, you know, Jesus Christ did some incredible things on earth. One of the most incredible things that he did on earth was he, he obeyed all 613 of the, messi- of the Jewish laws recorded in the Torah. Could you do that? I remember when I was in uh, college, um, the the rule book would come out every so often. And the college rule book got bigger every year. Almost feels like it doubled in size. And I remember one year I I got the rule book and I started reading through the rule book and I just tossed it aside. I was like, there's no way. There's no way I could obey all these rules. And I, I remember sitting in my dorm room and praying. I said, Lord, you know, I'm sorry in advance. I'm not, I'm not here to try to break rules, but I know a little something about my heart. I'm not going to obey all the rules. And it was the best semester I ever had. It was glorious. I had like 150 demerits and I could spend them. <laughs> yeah. Anybody ever did that, like treated demerits like money? Uh, this the college that I went to was a Christian college, so I, you know, we we could do stuff like that. But I treated it like money. I had 150 the merits, I spent it, you know. No, I spent it wisely, I Dave Ramsey'd it. Okay? I didn't just like spend it all at once. Like you know, it did when it was necessary. But but the point that I wanna make is this. I knew in my heart of hearts I wasn't going to be able obey those rules and there was nobody in my school even the ones that were most righteous among us that were able to obey those rules but you see what Peter is saying here that there is one that was incredibly righteous the most righteous person that ever lived he was both God and he was both man and he obeyed those rules fully and completely And when you give your life over to Him and entrust your life to Him, and you are in union with Him, it is possible that you can follow in His footsteps. Not that you will be perfect, but because His footsteps make it possible for you to follow in His footsteps. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's our calling, by the way. Our calling is to follow in the footsteps of the one who has gone before us. Now, there are some people I know, you know, they become Christians, and they don't like the idea that they have to be an example of a Christian. Because they say it's hard, it's difficult. But that's your calling. Now, not everybody thinks that way. I remember several years ago, Charles Barkley, um, Charles Barkley did a controversial, uh, uh, what was it, commercial. And in the commercial, Charles Barkley said this. He says, I am not a role model. I'm not paid to be a role model. I'm paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Now, here's what Charles Barkley was saying. He's saying, they don't pay me to be an example. They just pay me to rebound the ball and put the ball in the hoop. That's why I get paid. And everyone was up in arms with good old Chuck. But I actually agreed with him. It's not his job to be an example. It's not the president's job to be an example. It's not the TikTok influencer's job to be an example. It's also not musicians and Hollywood movie stars job to be an example. That's not why they get paid. But Christian, can I tell you? It is your responsibility to be an example to the world about who Jesus is. See, that's why I agreed with Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley understands what he gets paid for what is his responsibility and he does it and he did it well but christian can i ask you your question do you can i ask you this question do you understand that if you name the name of christ it is your responsibility to reflect and be an example of who jesus christ is to the watching world You know, one of the reasons several years ago, all these articles came out about cultural Christianity, and I read them because, you know, I lived in the South, and, you know, apparently the South is the biggest offender of (laughs) cultural Christianity. And in reading these articles, uh, someone made the point, they said, you know, Christians are going to be an example either way. We're either going to be an example of who Jesus Christ is, or we're going to be a reflection of our culture. And the reason why Christianity has been infected with cultural Christianity is because we do less reflecting of Christ and more reflecting of the world and the culture around us. Um, One of my favorite um, plays, writers and plays of all time, is Oscar Wilde. And he wrote um, a story called The Importance of Being Earnest. How many of you uh, have either read that or watched it? It's It's a fantastic play. I love, love that play. Do you all know that, that one of the reasons why Oscar Wilde wrote it was a critique against um, Victorian Christianity? You see, Victorian Christianity, even though there were some good aspects of it, one of the things about um, Victorian Christianity was it was infected with cultural Christianity. There were people who um, projected themselves to be one way, but they were completely other. In fact, that's what the whole story of the importance of being earnest is about. You had this young man, Jack Worthing, and he was the good, upstanding man, did everything he was supposed to do. But then, behind, when nobody else knew or when nobody else was looking, he transformed into earnest. You know, this firebrand, Rapscallion who went about doing whatever he wanted to do. And the whole point of the play, and it was a devastating critique against cultural Christianity, so much so that they actually shut the play down. Why did they shut the play down? The reason why they shut the play down is because Oscar Wilde put his finger on the hypocrisy of Christians and Christianity, and it's this. That they were reflecting more of their culture and the world than they were about Jesus Christ. Yet they expected everyone else outside of their tribe to reflect Christ. And it's true even now. You know, as Christians, we want prayer in the school, but we rarely pray. We want the Bible in the school, but we rarely read it. You know? The music we listen to, the clothes we wear, the things we do. Look, if if we are going to be examples of Christ, that can't be a part-time endeavor. And that's what Oscar Wilde was trying to tell him. Now, in some sense, you know, Wilde might have gone too far. I, I will grant that. But is it unreasonable for us to think that if Christ died for us, leaving us an example To follow in his footsteps, there's a certain expectation that we do what? Follow in his footsteps. That's not unreasonable. That's your calling. That's the requirement, what you and I are expected to do. Now, you're sitting there and you're like, Pastor, look, I've tried. I'm trying. It's difficult to be an example Christ at all times. I fail all the time. I fail at work. I fail at school. I fail in my classes. I fail with my friends. How can we do it? How can we be an example? Do you have to be a God man to be an example? Jesus actually tells us, if you look, um, if you look at verse number 23, First of all, in verse 22 and 23, we are told how Jesus was an example. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And here is how you and I can follow in the steps and be an example. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's how you and I become an example of Christ. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, he, he mentioned, like, there were, like, seven sayings of Jesus. I thirst, um, you know, what, what are some of them? I thirst, uh, you know, woman, behold your son. Uh, there's several of them. But, but there's one of them that said, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. Okay? That was one of the, that. That's a powerful statement. And the reason why it's a powerful statement is because of this. When you become a Christian, Jesus just didn't, did, uh, just didn't do that in his death. He actually did that in his life. The key, the key, if I could say it like this, the key of following in Christ's steps, the key of representing Christ to the world is you daily giving your life into his hands, entrusting your life into his hands. In trusting in Jesus Christ. When you're tempted, you know, if you're unmarried and you're tempted to have sex outside of marriage, what do you do? You entrust your life into Jesus' hands that one day he will bring you the spouse that you need. When you're tempted to steal and take things that don't belong to you, what do you do? You entrust your life into Jesus Christ's hands, saying that he will provide everything that you need. When you are tempted. When you're tempted to despair, what do you do? You entrust your life into Jesus Christ's hands, knowing that he will care for you. That's what it means. That's a complete, that's a holistic form of Christianity. It's daily and continually entrusting your life in the Father's hands. Why? Peter says it at the end. Verse number 25. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. He knows the beginning from the end. And when your life is in his hands, he cares for you and provides for you and oversees in your life. You and I, as God's people, we should be free from worry. We should be free from, no, not, you know, not concern, worry, yes, but there's some healthy concerns. But by and large, we should be free from worry. We should be free um, in many ways from the sins that so easily beset us. And the reason being is because we understand fully and completely that our lives are turned over in Jesus' hands. Now, real quick, Jesus is an example. He's the wonderful example. He's the greatest example. But you know, Scripture tells us he's more than an example. Notice in verse number 24, and I'll end with this. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What an amazing verse. What does it mean that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body. This is a view of of the atonement known as penal substitutionary atonement. It means this, that Christ took on the punishment for your sin. This is legal language. Uh, Let me say it this way. Imagine for a moment, all of you are murderers on trial and you're about to get sentenced. Now, some of you are looking at me, Pastor, I'd never heard a fly. Well, today you're a murderer. You're a violent murderer. You even have, like, the teardrop tattoo and all that. Now, 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 you're a murderer. You're standing there, and judgment is about to be pronounced on you. And here Jesus comes and says, I'll die in that person's place. Now, for centuries, they've been arguing, well, how is that possible? It is possible. Number one, according to the law of God, God allows for a substitute. So instead of you dying for your sin, Christ steps up and dies for your sin. Not that he actually committed the murder, but the penalty, the penalty, the the judicial penalty that you would have incurred, Christ incurred for you. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Your punishment became his punishment. Your death became his death. And the judge allowed it. Because you ultimately sinned against his laws. But the second thing is this. You might ask the question, well how could Jesus do that? Is he good enough? And the answer to that question is, Yes. You know, if you have two people that commit murder, right? They commit the same murder. One person cannot say, I'll take the punishment for the other person. Why? Because that's an accomplice. Right? Both of you committed the sin. Both of you committed the murder. So both of you deserve the punishment. But the point of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ is not an accomplice to sin. He's free from sin. That's the nature of the gospel. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 5 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was not an accomplice to our sin. That's what makes it possible for him to die for our sins. And here's the best part. Not only did Christ die for our sins, but he rose again to prove that sin has no dominion over him and no longer does sin have dominion over you. Now, that's the theology behind that. What's the practical aspect of that? The practical aspect of that is this. Now you've been set free. You know, um, I I think everyone's been keeping up with the Brian Laundrie case you know, and the young man that was on the run. And I kept thinking to myself, imagine being him on the run. Every time he hears a bush rattle, he has to go hide. Or every time something happens, he's he's trying to stay away from people. That's what happens when normally you're guilty, right? If you're guilty of something, you run, you hide, you're afraid, you're scared. That's what happens when you're guilty. But what if you've been set free? What have you been uh, acquitted? How should you act? Normal. You can go to the store. You're not fearful that somebody's going to grab you, right? That's how you and I should be acting. We've been set free. The righteous demands of the law are no longer hanging over us. When Christ came and died for us, when he bore those sins in his body, and notice it said sins, that means all your sins, past, present, and future. And not only the sin, but the guilt for that sin. Because you might be sitting there and saying, Pastor, you know, I committed these sins. I I don't know what I'm going to do because those sins are weighing on my conscience. Look, you've been set free. Act like free people. That's the essence of the gospel. You don't owe sin anything. Christ has completely paid for every sin that you could possibly imagine, and he did it in his body. That means he took it on the complete penalty for it, and therefore you can walk like free people. That's why he says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When you walk out of this building, you're free to do good. Do as much as as you want. Go, Go ahead, try it. When you leave here, just start doing good because you're free to do good. You're free to live like free people. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Now, why did Christ do this? Why did he do this? Because he loves you. You know, my, I mentioned my finger earlier. One of the things that they have to do to get my finger actually right is they have to really press down on it to make it straight. Man, that hurts. And I was thinking to myself, like, man, if I didn't need my finger, I wouldn't be doing this because this is a lot of pain. We don't like enduring pain even when it profits us. But imagine Christ as he's nailed down, as he's beaten, as he's kept on that cross. The pain that was endured wasn't for himself. It was for you so that you might be set free and so that you might follow now in his footsteps. That's the essence of the gospel. Now, what is the big takeaway in all of this? The big takeaway is simple, that we commit our lives to the task of following in his steps. We've been set free. We've been made free. There are no more liens on us. There's no more. um, There's nothing else that is required. You're free to do good. So go do it. Go do it. And trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful music that we've heard. Thank you for just the people here and the fellowship that we have in you. Thank you for your word that reminds us constantly of who you is and what you did for us. And now we, as your people, are set free and we can leave here and we can just do good. Man, that feels good. It feels good to do good. Um, bless each and every one of us inside here today. Lord, I I have no illusions that one sermon would answer all questions or one sermon would cause us to just walk out of here and never have a problem with sin. That's why we need That's why we need Sundays. But I pray that even today we might be mindful of Jesus and our deep need for him to have him preeminent. Bless us now in Jesus name. Amen.